Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 55 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Matt Anderson, the John and Horace Dodge Curator of Transportation at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Anderson joined the Henry Ford in 2012 and is responsible for the extensive collection of historic automobiles, trucks, motorcycles, railroad locomotives, horse-drawn vehicles, and aircraft at the museum. He has bachelor's and master's degrees in history with a concentration in public history, both from Western Michigan University. But today we'll primarily be discussing the revolutionary 1920s Ford trimotor aircraft, the plane that ushered in the modern era of passenger air travel. Anderson joins us from Dearborn. Matt, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks, Bruce. Glad to be here. First off, set the scene for us at the time of the first incarnation of the Ford Trimotor. What was going on with the Ford Motor Company itself? There really was just one model at this time, and that, of course, the, the famous Ford Model T, which had been introduced uh, in 1908 and was still going strong. In fact, in the early 20s, it had its strongest years ever, selling something like 2 million cars each year. Uh, it was just beginning to uh, age a little past its prime, if, if that makes sense, and that'll become more apparent throughout the 1920s that the Model T begins to fall out of date. Competitor cars get uh, get better, start to outsell it, and, and Ford has to come up with something new by the uh, the mid 1920s. But in the early 20s, not a problem. And Henry Ford himself is really sort of at the peak of his powers at, at that point uh, with what he's doing at Ford Motor Company, with his reputation among the public and uh, and folks he's thought of as being an industrial miracle worker. My late father was a, a child of the the Depression. He was born in 23. And I distinctly remember, he, he actually did remember the Model Ts, but he actually grew up really with the Model As. When did the Model As actually come into being? The Model A is introduced for 1927. That is the car that replaces the Model T. And uh, you know Ford was numbering his cars, or lettering them, I should say, through, through the alphabet. And that was a part of the, uh, frankly, the gimmick to kind of sell this car as a completely new, completely reimagined automobile, <laughs> kind of rebooting the company, going back to Model A. And interestingly, their first car in 1903, when the company was founded, was also the Model A. So Ford was saying, in a sense, you know, we're going back to the beginning. And, and indeed, the Model A was a great seller as well. It just uh, didn't stay around as long as the Model T. So at the time that uh, the Fords uh, acquired Stout Aircraft Manufacturing, uh, were, were, was the Ford company making anything but the Model T? Were they making uh, Ford trucks at that time? They were making trucks at this time, uh, by the time they buy the, the Stout Company, uh, though the trucks were based on the Model T platform, and that was part of the genius behind the Model T. Uh, it, it could be ordered in, in any variety of body styles or shapes or forms, but it was always the same base engine and, and transmission and so forth underneath. So as A.J. Bame writes in The Arsenal of Democracy, when Henry and Edsel Ford bought out William Bushnell Stout, and built their own factory in 1925, the single-engine Stout monoplane was turned into a tri-motor, the Stout 3-AT, with three Curtis Wright air-cooled radial engines. What does the 3-AT stand for? The AT is just 
air transport, and three would be the uh, the series or, or the generation number, you might say. So it's it's air transport Mark III, the, the third attempt to uh, build a plane to stout satisfaction. And so even though these engines were state-of-the-art, they were more prone to overheating than their water-cooled successors, right? That was a concern, that, that air-cooled engines would overheat. Uh, most cars at the time used water-cooled engines. It was a, a reliable and proven technology. Uh, but the problem with that is then you're hauling a lot of water with your airplane, which, of course, takes extra fuel and adds extra weight to the airplane. So I think people realized that the future was with air-cooled engines. It was just a matter of making sure they were reliable and, and safe enough as the proven water-cooled technology. So the Fords quickly became the top producing airplane manufacturer in the country, and though there were many models, the Ford Trimotor, nicknamed the uh, the Tin Goose, became the best seller. Why did it outpace other aircraft manufacturers at that time? Well, the Ford Trimotor had uh, had several things going for it. I think uh, one of which was the the airplane looked safe, and and that sounds like a, a flippant thing to say, but you know it's, uh, you really can't overestimate how important. That was to folks in the 1920s. Uh, aviation is still a relatively new technology, only been around for about 20 years or so. And most folks at that point, if they'd seen an airplane, it was in the context of a barnstorming show where you have people looping the loops and doing all these kinds of crazy stunts. So to look at an airplane that's made of metal versus fabric and wood just inspires confidence. Uh, the trimotor, like the Model T, was also very flexible. This was an aircraft that was designed to be customized for carrying cargo, for carrying passengers, for carrying mail, whatever you might need. But I think most of all, the, the greatest advantage it, it had was just that Ford name. People knew Henry Ford. They knew the Model T. They, they trusted the products that came out of Ford's factories. So uh, looking at Henry Ford being involved with aviation made folks think, you know, maybe there is something to this aircraft. And within a few months of production, transcontinental air transport was created to provide coast-to-coast operation, capitalizing on the trimotor's ability to provide reliable and, for the first time, comfortable passenger service. Charles Lindbergh, who had just made his transatlantic solo flight in 1927, was instrumental in setting up TAT, which uh, later became a part of TWA. Can you tell us a bit about uh, TAT? Yeah, TAT was indeed partly founded by Charles Lindbergh. Uh, the company brought him on board to serve as a consultant, and, and undoubtedly he did help plan the routes and, and offered advice on the aircraft and these kinds of things. But they, I'm sure, were, were more interested in the name Charles Lindbergh. You know, he made that flight in, in May of 1927 across the Atlantic, and, and he was the greatest celebrity of, of his time, uh, sort of like a, the Beyonce of his era, I guess, to compare him to someone today. <laughs> Everybody was talking about him, knew him. So to have him with your company was, was a great asset. Uh, and yes, TAT was offering transcontinental service, but not in the way we would think of it today. They were essentially leapfrogging across the country. Folks really weren't flying at night at that time. It wasn't safe enough. Uh, frankly, it wasn't easy to find your way flying at night. So instead, they would fly passengers by trimotor airplane during the day, then land, move them onto a, a train for the overnight hours, and then put them back on an airplane to finish out the journey. So uh, not the uh, the smooth, uh, nonstop flight we think of today. But you're correct. Uh, uh, TAT eventually became a part of TWA, evolved into that company. So just to be clear, at the time that uh, the Fords bought the Stout Aircraft Company. Who was is, who is Stout's customers? Well, we should uh, give some credit to, to William B. Stout. He really was a visionary 
of his time, realizing that there was potential for commercial aviation. And uh, his vision was really to turn Detroit into the, the aircraft city, just as it had become the, the automotive city or the motor city. And, uh, you know, like any successful entrepreneur, he, he had a, a sense of showmanship, I think, a flair for the dramatic. So he uh, famously sent letters to some of the wealthiest folks in the Detroit area. And that, of course, included Henry and Edsel Ford, asking them to pledge $1,000 in stock to help support his company and his vision to turn Detroit into the aircraft capital. And he had said in his letter that, uh, you know, for all of his dreams and his vision, he could only promise one thing, they would never see their money again. And I think that actually appealed to some of these folks. These Folks who were willing to uh, to jump in on that, and of course there was some civic pride involved as well. But yes, uh, Stout's first aircraft they they were flying and uh, not necessarily on, on regular commercial routes. That would happen after he he teams up with Henry Ford. They would begin to fly mail and then products and parts for Ford Motor Company. Actually, uh, rather quickly on routes from uh, the Detroit area to Cleveland to Chicago, rather close in in the Midwest. So that was actually ingenious. So. Henry Ford and Edsel Ford used the existing air network to deliver parts uh, for their own manufacturing interests. Yeah, in effect, uh, the, their automotive operations could subsidize their, their airline operations. They had things, obviously, they need to move between plants. Occasionally, they'd fly Ford executives this way as well. So uh, that's really what Henry Ford realized, too, I think, with aviation. He, he knew the technology was sort of on a on an edge of maturing, and, and all it needed was somebody with, with deep pockets who could uh, support it in, in really converting it from a, kind of a ragtag experimental thing into a genuine, well-oiled industry. And, and that's really what he did at the end of the day. So Henry Ford, in talking to the media, though, gave all the, uh, the credit to Edsel. He quote, quote, he says, He is a pioneering spirit behind our flying activity, said Henry Ford uh, to the New York Times. And the New York Times added a comment of its own, Quote, it is no secret that Henry Ford wants his own son, Edsel, to become the same figure in aviation that he himself has become in the automotive field. Did Henry Ford have a passion for aviation, or was he really just doing it for his son, Edsel? Well, you're absolutely right that, that Edsel Ford deserves credit for, for bringing uh, Ford Motor and, and Stout together. Uh, Edsel is, is overshadowed by Henry today, as he was in his own lifetime. He's really something of a a tragic figure because he undoubtedly could have accomplished more had his father sort of stepped aside and let the next generation take over, which sadly never happened. But I, I think that gets to your your larger point here. Edsel certainly was the driving force that, that brought Stout together. He he had his eye on the future, as, as younger generations typically do. But uh, at the end of the day, it was Henry's decision to get Ford Motor Company involved, and, and Henry never quite relinquished control of of. Uh, air operations to Edsel. And for that matter, he never really relinquished control of Ford Motor Company to Edsel either. So uh, the two of them really can't be separated. But unfortunately, uh, Edsel Ford is now probably more remembered for the the ill-fated model Edsel, uh, I believe, which came out of the late, in the late 1950s, than his uh, first efforts in helping the Ford Tri-Motor become the workhorse of commercial aviation that it, once, uh, that it actually became. One of the uh, the most unfortunate ironies in the uh, automotive industry, for that matter, probably in U.S. business history, uh, Edsel Ford was a very talented 
automotive designer. He had a real sense, as, as Henry said, for what a car should look like. Uh, he designed the, the Model A. He designed uh, the early Lincoln Continentals, which are almost universally acknowledged as being some of the most beautiful American cars ever built. And yet you are correct. His, uh, his sons, in, in a good-hearted attempt to kind of honor their father, named that new model the Edsel that came out in the 1950s. But as probably most folks know, the car did not sell nearly as well as Ford Motor Company hoped. And uh, it has since become shorthand basically for, for failure. So it's, uh, it is an unfortunate thing that, that Edsel's name is remembered for that, probably more than anything today. And was Edsel still alive at the time the Edsel came out? Uh, we, we should say Edsel passed away in, in 1943, so no, he was not alive at the time the Edsel was introduced in the, the late 1950s. So that, uh, that just compounds the, uh, the unfortunate circumstance. So as David Weiss notes in his book, The Saga of the Ten Goose, the Trimotor's innovations were all-metal construction, an enclosed cockpit, and, and a cantilever wing. So the cockpit design was efficient. It had dual controls, which allowed either the pilot or co-pilot, or in bad weather, both to fly the aircraft. And there were two pilots and a flight attendant, all of whom were in uniform. And generally, the the plane sat, what, between 8 and 11? Was, it, was its design a radical step up from other aircraft? It was a, a real technological breakthrough. Uh, the other planes had used the, the metal construction, duralumin and, and aluminum alloy, there had also been tri-motor or three-engine aircraft. Uh, Fokker aircraft were using a tri-motor design, but uh, the Ford tri-motor put those two concepts together. And those three engines not only gave you additional power, but but more importantly, they gave you an additional margin of safety. The, the Ford tri-motor could fly perfectly fine on just two engines, and it could fly uh, long enough to get a safe landing on even just one engine. So that was an important uh, part of the design. You know, I think it was also important and something that sometimes get overlooked is that the Ford Trimotor put the pilot and the co-pilot ahead of the wing. The cockpit was set ahead of the wing. If you picture one of those those biplanes from the World War One era or even the early 1920s, you can think of the pilot sitting in the backseat as they fly. And many pilots at the time thought that was safer in the event of a, a nosedive on crash landing. They, they have a little more space between them and, and the ground. But uh, Stout in particular realized that that was limiting their vision. It was an obstruction to have the wing up there. So he put the pilots ahead of it, which was a real breakthrough. Of course, now just seems like common sense. The plane's own cabin was only 16 feet in length. I mean, that's not two uh, basketball players in length and in height. And uh, the plane was fast for its era. But today, you know, a souped up Mustang uh, built by Ford could uh, easily outrun a tri-motor without even stretching it. Yeah, an early Ford Trimotor uh, cruised somewhere around 100 miles an hour, maybe 110. The, the later models got up to about 120. But yeah, even that, I think, could be uh, outpaced by a, a particularly well-souped-up Mustang. So yeah, much slower than what we're used to today. So the Trimotor's cruising speed averaged about 100 miles per hour and had a range of less than 600 miles. Uh, I think that's about the distance between either Atlanta and Chicago or Atlanta and, and, and uh, St. Louis. The Trimotor had, though, an absolute altitude of almost 19,000 feet. That's not where they cruise typically, but I was kind of shocked that this plane could get up to that altitude. Were you, are you surprised by that? It is surprising that it can get that high, particularly because the, the cabin is not pressurized. Uh, though I think most of the time they would have flown much lower than that because at the time the tri-motor's flying, 
navigation simply didn't exist the way that it does today. Obviously, no no GPS systems, no no radar, none of that. Uh, for the most part, pilots are navigating by visible landmarks on the ground. I mean, they would literally follow railroad tracks or roadways to go where they were going. And you know, I mentioned that Ford was flying between uh, Detroit and Cleveland. You would think that they would just fly the short route over Lake Erie. In fact, they would fly first down to Toledo and then to Cleveland so they could stay over land the whole way, partly to navigate and partly so they could could land the plane on the ground if something went wrong. So, yeah, it could fly very high, but but very often did not. So at the time the, the tri-motor came out, the Boeing 40-A was already in existence and was followed by the 80-A, uh, which could hold a few more passengers than the 40-A. So did Bill Boeing and Henry Ford know each other? Were they friendly competitors or or did they really not like each other? I, so far as I know, I don't believe they, they ever actually met personally, though certainly both would have been aware of what, what each was doing. And uh, they're both important for their contributions to, to aviation. They're the real entrepreneurs or, or serious business folks who came to aviation with a very sort of formal attitude. And they weren't kind of, to use part of the expression, fly-by-night pilots or somebody who was out just you know having fun or had kind of crazy ideas without any plan for them. So they both certainly made important contributions. Uh, if, if I know Henry Ford, he, he may not have thought of Bill Boeing as a competitor because Ford had this uh, this sort of belief in his own publicity that he was, you know, enough people call you a genius to start to believe it. So he would have thought he was so far ahead that he perhaps didn't have to worry about what Boeing was up to. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was thinking that way uh, in 1925, 1926 at least. There's one thing I'm a bit confused about, and that's the economics of this whole thing. Because Henry Ford, even before he bought Stout Aircraft, was kind of skeptical about the economics of making commercial passenger service uh, profitable, given the cost of the aircraft themselves. You're absolutely right. I, he realized, perhaps more than, than others, that it, you were going to have to lose a lot of money before you would eventually be able to make some money in, in aircraft production. Uh, and it's a part of his own personal history. You know, he founded Ford Motor Company in 1903. That was his third attempt to build an automotive company. His first two companies had failed. And, uh, you know, of course, each time it was more difficult to attract investor support. So Ford knew the risks and what was going to be involved. And, and as it turned out, Ford really never did make any money on his aircraft. He ended up spending far more on uh, the production of the planes, the, the research, the development, the, the machines to build these aircraft, for that matter, than he would have gotten out of, uh, out of profits in flying them. So even though he went into the venture with eyes wide open, uh, he just took that the fact that you might have a money-losing operation for maybe a decade before it became profitable, and that was just the cost of doing business or, or uh, a blazing new trails in business, right? That's exactly right. Ford realized that you know it was going to take some money to, to make some money, essentially, and he realized that you, know, you needed somebody with the deep pockets and the resources to make it happen, and why not him? At, the co- at a cost of roughly uh, $50,000, the Ford Tri-Motor in its heyday was purchased mainly by Hollywood stars and military and later by nascent airlines like Pan Am and TWA, Edsel Ford created the Ford Reliability Tour, which became no- known as the Edsel Ford Trophy. That's correct. Okay. So pilots gathered at, at, at Ford Airport and a few cities around the country to drum up publicity for the Ford Tri-Motor, essentially. And the whole point of it was 
not to win an air trophy, but was to basically show the general public that air travel was safe and reliable. That, that's absolutely correct. It was sort of sold under this idea of being a research and development operation, but it really was more publicity than, than anything to show the potential for air travel, to show the safety involved. And uh, it's important probably to explain that the tour was a reliability tour. This was not a race. Instead, the planes were judged on how close they could keep to a set schedule, being able uh-huh. to take off and land on time. And, uh, you know, that was important, not necessarily finishing first, but finishing on the, the advertised time. And uh, yes, the, the Edsel Ford Trophy was a uh, part of the the appeal and part of the publicity of this, frankly, this beautiful trophy with a globe with little model airplanes around it. And uh, I'm pleased to say the trophy survives today and it is in the collections of, of our museum. So you can see it on exhibit should you come to visit. So the interesting, another interesting thing is that the trimotor initially was used also for short sightseeing luncheon tours over Detroit itself. <laughs> uh, a lady named Catherine Fisher took at least three such luncheon flights and recounted her experiences for the readers of Good Housekeeping in 1930. She wrote that Ford had outfitted the interior of the aircraft with a kitchenette for meal preparation, quote, comfortable chairs, attractively upholstered, curtain windows, and a colorful interior, reminding her of conditions aboard an ocean liner. And in fact, uh, women were a major demographic target for the trimotor, was that because uh, traditional male business travelers that we used to know in the 60s and 70s and 80s were not using aircraft at that time? They were instead using railroads? Well, I think this goes back to an old uh, truism in the, the advertising and the manufacturing business, for that matter. Certainly held in the automotive business and uh, would have held in, in aircraft as well, that men at the time were, were the ones who were, were spending the money. They were the ones making the purchases, whether it was buying a car or buying a ticket to fly in an airplane. But more often than not, women were making the decisions for the family. In ah. other words, if, if the, the woman thought this was a good idea, the, the wife, the mother, whatever it might be, then, then typically the husband would, would then buy into it. So yes, there was this conscious effort to uh, advertise to women. And, and if you look at some of those advertisements, a lot of women are pictured. There's a great one by Ford, which uh, sort of uh, praises the, the women pioneers of aviation. So folks like uh, like Catherine Wright, the sister of the Wright brothers, or uh, or Amelia Earhart. And uh, you know, the language is perhaps a little sexist by the standards of, of the day, but nevertheless, it shows where they were targeting these advertisements. Weiss notes that the engines uh, produced 115 decibels. So basically, aboard the aircraft, even though you were comfortable to some extent, you could not, in fact, talk to anyone <laughs> i mean you actually had to pantomime whatever you wanted is that, is that right was it that bad that's absolutely true you really couldn't hold a conversation with anyone with, without yelling at the top of your lungs so it was often easier just to to pantomime or, or communicate in some kind of a a basic sign language uh, in fact that you know one of the first things you'd get when you were boarding a ford trimotor is uh, a couple of pieces of cotton that you could stuff into your ears to try and cut down on some of that noise uh you know you read accounts of, of the the time people who flew in these airplanes and they always mentioned the noise and there was a quite a bit of uh of air sickness uh, as well. Yes, so they, the accounts of the time always mention the noise. There is another thing they always mention, and that is the stench, frankly. <laughs> there was quite a bit of, of air sickness because they couldn't really fly above the turbulence because of this need to, of course, stay close to the ground to, to navigate. So the plane would, would bump and, and rock and roll. And this was an experience that you know no one had ever had. It was literally the first time people were ever flying. So upset stomachs happened, and uh, 
you often there would be uh, you know not to be too <laughs> too uh, graphic but a, a bucket that would be passed around and could be used as needed and and you can imagine a few people have to use that and it, it starts to smell pretty quickly inside that uh, cramped metal cabin but on the other hand they did pride themselves on i mean these luncheons which were maybe not as prone the the luncheon tours were maybe not as prone to air sickness because they were basically just flying around uh, i guess at low altitude around detroit uh, but on the cross-country journeys, they would serve cold chicken with uh, potato salad. And I, I remember uh, one account said that uh, they even topped it off with strawberry shortcake, which is quite, you know, which, which, is, which sounds good. But I guess uh, maybe half an hour after that, if they hit some rough air, all that stuff could come right back up. But uh, uh, th- that's the risk. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm tempted to say that the uh, the food service wasn't as good as what it is today. But I, I don't know what, what it is today. Maybe it was better back then to get that that sandwich and the uh, strawberry shortcake. But there are two kind of crazy, innovative uses of the aircraft that do merit mentioning. One was the Royal Typewriter Company of Hartford, Connecticut, bought a trimotor to deliver typewriters to its distri- to to its distributors by parachute. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yes, Royal Typewriters bought a trimotor and uh, they wanted to be able to deliver typewriters to their distributors and they didn't want to basically waste time by landing and then having to take off again so they would pack these typewriters in crates three at a time and then attach each crate to a parachute and then just push them out over the side and I guess hope that the wind carried that crate to the uh, to the proper location. But, uh, you know, it, it was uh, probably you know, 30% uh, delivery and, and 70% promotion. Certainly they attracted a lot of headlines and attention by doing that. They eventually, though, I think, sold the tri-motor after about a year of that and, and went on to something else, I guess. I don't know. Then a, a Ford tri-motor, this is really a, a crazy story, a Ford Trimotor was used for the flight of Elm Farm Ollie, the first cow to fly in an aircraft and to be milked mid-flight. Now, why in the world would a cow be in an aircraft and being milked in, 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 a, in a Trimotor? Come on. I, I, yeah, I think the only reason you would you do anything that that crazy is because people would talk about how crazy it was. So you would again get more more publicity, generate some headlines, and uh, yeah, you, know, you think about it today, it seems like a, a crazy idea. I feel sorry for the cow, which presumably didn't have much of a choice in the matter. But yeah, there were all kinds of crazy ideas. Uh, there was a company called Monarch Foods that that turned a trimotor into a flying sales room with uh, examples of their their products. Kind of, it almost looked like a, a grocery store uh, with wings, frankly. Uh, there was another fellow, a mortician in Pittsburgh named Ralph Sugar, who bought a uh, trimotor to use as an aerial hearse, which uh, you know, I, I would maybe not call that a gimmick. You know, One of the, the problems, anytime a, a loved one passes away, it's stressful, but particularly when it happens far from home. So Sugar's idea was to fly the decedent back home and uh, kind of reduce the anxiety and the worry for the family. So oh. any number of uh, ideas for the use of the trimotor. But in 1932, uh, then-presidential candidate, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was running for his first term, uh, used a trimotor for a whistle-stop air tour instead of a, a traditional railroad uh, car. It, it's absolutely true. He uh, He's the first one to use an aircraft in, in campaign work like that for a whistle-stop tour. And uh, again, it's something that just seems so obvious today when candidates are flying all over the country all the time. But uh, when Roosevelt tried it, it was absolutely new. And uh, probably uh, some hesitancy involved, too, knowing that, that aircraft and air travel was still still a fairly primitive business but uh, you know when, when a presidential candidate starts doing it, it it changes things in the public mind and people 
start to take aviation more seriously. So Edsel Ford was also a major backer behind the expedition of U.S. Navy Commander Richard Byrd, who in 1926 became the first pilot to fly over the North Pole in a plane named Josephine Ford after Edsel's young daughter. And then three years later, Byrd flew over the South Pole and named a series of mountain ranges after Edsel, and they're still called the Ford Ranges today. So on November 28th and 29th, 1929, Richard Byrd successfully flew over the South Pole in a Ford 4-AT-B trimotor. This, I'm a bit confused by this. Uh, I thought this was a Fokker trimotor. Was it actually a Ford trimotor or a Fokker trimotor? It, it is a, a bit confusing, and the answer uh, about whether Bird flew a, a Ford or a Fokker is, is yes, he flew both. The uh, the 1926 flight to the North Pole was in a Fokker trimotor. And, a Fokker uh, trimotor, okay. Yeah, yes, sorry. and Anthony Fokker being a, another sort of promotional genius here, he was concerned people were going to think that Bird was flying to the North Pole in a Ford trimotor, so he painted in giant letters uh, Fokker underneath the wings, so nobody would make that mistake. But yes, the South Pole flight in 1929 was in a Ford trimotor. And Ford at that time, Edsel Ford, gave $100,000 of his own money, I guess, uh, to fund this, to fund the, the South Pole expedition. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Bert, uh, I think Edsel Ford was supportive of what Bird was doing, certainly, but I think he also realized that there was some promotional opportunity for, for aircraft and aviation in this, too. And so $50,000 for the cost of an aircraft. But what would that be in today's dollars? Have any idea? I was curious. So I did run it through the inflation calculator. It looks like it would be a little under a million dollars today. So I guess we should probably. Okay. Even, even, more, straight. even more of a bargain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So as the as the pilot uh, circle of the South Pole, uh, because Bird was a navigator on the South Polar Venture, uh, Bird dropped three American flags to honor three previous explorers, and the crew returned to the Little America base, which Edsel Ford had partially, I think, uh, funded with this hundred thousand dollars. Nineteen hours after they had taken, they had first taken off, having flown eleven hundred and thirty-five miles. Well, that's another question for you because they did a 19-hour flight. They didn't land at the South Pole, and they just circled the South Pole. And that's a that was a great feat at that time. I'm not taking I'm not taking anything away from Admiral Byrd, but how were they able to stretch the fuel to make that long a flight? I didn't think the Ford trimotor had that range. They, uh, they made a, a couple of modifications, uh, not the least of which was expanding the size of the fuel tanks. They uh, extended the wingspan by about four or five feet so they could fit some larger tanks in there. But beyond that, they, they basically removed anything from the airplane that didn't help get it off the ground or keep it in the air. So they used a, a lighter Duralumin. They, they removed all the, the seats and all of the interior fixtures and trim from the airplane. They even removed the window glass and replaced it with uh, celluloid, the equivalent of a plastic material. So uh, whatever they could do to save weight, they did it. And so the plane was landed back at Little America and in 1935 was shipped back to Dearborn for display in the Henry Ford Museum. And I assume it's still there. The trimotor is still in, in our museum, yes. And interestingly, uh, as we interpret it now, we have it set up in an airport setting. We uh, It used to have the skis on it that Bird used when he landed on, on the South Pole. And, and we realized, 
again, not to take anything away from Berger's achievements, an important thing, but we really were kind of missing the main point of the trimotor story, which is what it represented for, for passenger and commercial aviation. So we, we still have the plane. It's still painted with all the bird markings, but we use it to tell uh, more the civil aviation side of the story. So above all, I mean, let's kind of step back and, and think about the trimotor itself and what it represented. Henry Ford was attempting to apply automobile assembly line techniques to the manufacture of aircraft and to build them in mass quantities, something that really had not been attempted before. So the peak of the production for the Ford trimotor in whatever model was in June of 1925, almost 100 years ago this month. Was he unable to use assembly line techniques that he had learned in making the Model T and later the Model A to bring the cost of production down significantly? He was able to adapt a number of the basic techniques that, of course, he had really revolutionized in in automotive manufacturing with the the moving assembly line in in building trimotors. And and you're right, June of 1925, they hit their peak and they built something like 17 airplanes in that single month. And uh, as it turned out, that was really uh, not average. It was atypical. Most of the time they were turning out four or five airplanes a month. But uh, the the drawback to Ford's production techniques, and and this is what caused problems with, with aircraft, is that it really depends on a fixed design that doesn't change, doesn't have any modifications, like the Model T famously never really had any major manufacturer design changes, I should say, over its uh, its lifespan. Because you're spending a lot of money to build highly specialized machines to fabricate the parts that go into your Model T or your Ford trimotor, in this case. The problem is, of course, the plane was being changed all the time, and aviation technology was improving sometimes quite drastically Uh by the month, by the day, maybe sometimes. So it was hard for Ford to kind of sink into building those expensive production machines and apparatus to produce the airplane. So uh, I, I think with a few more years of, of technological maturity, he may have gotten there. But as it turned out, he, he didn't have a chance. Despite all the effort, transcontinental air transport never turned to profit. TAT provided a top-class service designed for those who could afford to pay $350 one way, coast-to-coast, which is about... By some accounts, that's of about four thousand uh, dollars by today's standards, or uh, the cost of a supersonic Concorde fare at the time. Only a small number of business executives in the 1920s found this cost worth the extra time savings. Yeah, I, I think your uh, your mention of the Concorde there is, is quite apt. I mean, we can think about that plane and, and what it offered in terms of you know, cutting the, the time traveling between Europe and, and North or South America dramatically, but also costing dramatically more than a standard uh, jet fare. And uh, you could think of the same with the Ford Trimotor or, or TAT services versus railroad service. A lot of folks just kind of ran the numbers and decided that the time savings wasn't worth it. And of course, at this time, aviation is, is brand new anyhow, so it, it's not as though they were used to traveling at a faster pace than what the train provided uh, for, for a number of years. That was just good enough for folks. But um, although it was reliable, the Ford Trimotor did suffer a couple of accidents, which uh, bore heavily on the public perception. Uh, and one was on September 4th, 1929, a TAT plane carrying eight passengers struck a mountainside in California during a thunderstorm, killing all aboard. Uh, did that affect passenger numbers in the late 20s? 
Yeah, anytime you have a, a disaster like that, particularly when, when everyone on board the airplane is, is lost, it, it, of course, gets a lot of news and, and puts a lot of doubt in, in the public mind, though I, I would argue really the most significant crash of that era came a couple of years later when uh, Notre Dame football coach uh, Newt Rockney was killed uh, in a crash over Kansas. Now, that was in a, a Fokker trimotor, and in fact, it, it pretty much ended the production of the Fokker trimotor, such as the notoriety. But Rockney was a, a superstar, a celebrity in, in the country, and that really drew some attention and, and really that crash also led to the formation of the predecessor of the modern uh, uh, the FAA I guess is what I'm trying to say well actually the FAA regulates air travel now but uh, the yeah. National Transportation and Safety Board is the agency that's what I'm NTSB the NTSB is. actually does try. the invest- I, investigations after can, the fact that's right yeah uh, the military tested the trimotors to see if the, they could bear the weight of bombs and one of them couldn't. A, a wing sheared off in flight and two test pilots were killed. And so that also contributed to Henry Ford's doubts about the uh, the trimotor. But I don't think he was fair about that because the Ford trimotor was not initially designed as a, as a military aircraft, was it? Not at all. No. In fact, Henry Ford rather famously resisted uh, building military equipment. Famous pacifist. Now that that said, during World War One and World War Two, Ford Motor Company went heavy into to manufacturing uh, material for the war effort. But uh, in non-war time, Ford was was not really interested in military contracts. So no, I I think that is rather uh, rather unfair for him to evaluate the trimotor success uh, based on on its design and how it was used in that circumstance. So the Great Depression forced Ford to refocus on his core auto business. And the company's commercial aircraft production was ended in 1933. Last off the line was one of Pan American's planes. On June 7, 1933, it was tested at Ford Airport and then turned over to the airline. It was the last Ford trimotor ever manufactured. Is that correct? That, that is correct. Yep, the last plane comes off the line June 7, 1933, goes to Pan American, and, and within a few years was actually sold to a, an airline in, in China. So uh, indeed, Good the Lord. trimotor made its impact around the world. What about the Boeing 247, which was faster than the trimotor? It was a twin-engine, low-wing design aircraft. Did it and the advent of the DC-3 essentially put the trimotor out of business? That's exactly right. The, the Boeing 247, and I think even to a larger extent, the uh, the DC-3 are, are the planes that, that pointed the way toward the future and, and put the trimotor out of the business. The DC-3 really hit that sweet spot. It could carry something like 17 or 18 passengers, which was enough that you could make money, make a profit just on those passenger fares rather than having to subsidize them with mail or, or some other cargo. So, so the DC-3 really was the plane that, that turned air transportation into a profitable business. What puzzles you most about this whole episode of the Trimotor? And do you ultimately think that Henry Ford made the right decision to get out of commercial aviation when he did? Well, you know, it's it's tough to, to second-guess him, and I, I don't really see how he could have made any other decision, given what he was facing with the enormity of the Great Depression, the drop-off in sales of, of automobiles, and the fact that cars were his bread and butter. All throughout his, his work on the, the trimotor, that business was dwarfed by what he was doing in building automobiles. So I, I think he made the right decision under 
uh, the circumstances at the time. But inevitably, what what puzzles me or interests me most is is what anyone would say: what might have happened if Ford had been able to stay in the business? I mean, there is some some evidence that he was working to continue to improve the tri motor. I mean, he'd already done great things with it, and who knows what what could have happened? Uh, you know, Ford may well have become the uh, you know just as he's the Henry Ford of cars, he could have been the Henry Ford of airplanes, I suppose. But of course, we'll never know. But interestingly enough, uh, during World War II, the largest aircraft manufacturing plant in the world was built at Willow Run, Michigan, where Ford produced thousands of B-24 Liberator bombers under license from consolidated aircraft. Yeah, the, the B-24 proved what Ford could do with, with the assembly line. And really, in a way, it's, it's a chance to prove what they had tried to do with the tri-motor. Here, we've really got genuine mass production of aircraft. They were turning out those planes at the rate of one every hour by the time they got everything up to, to date. Though, interestingly, they ran into the same problems that they had back in the 20s with the tri-motor and that the design of the B-24 was changing almost constantly. And as long as those designs were changing, they had to change the tooling. They had to change the equipment that was building these planes. So Ford really had a sort of a you know, let, let's stop and, and work this out moment with the, the U.S. government and said we can't do this anymore. We've got to set this design, freeze the design so we can build the airplanes. But once that was done, then, yeah, Ford was really turning them out. Tremendous achievement. And so the uh, ironically – uh, although women were initially luxury lunch passengers on the tri-motor sightseeing tours, by the middle of World War II, women were hard at work building these B-24 bomber aircraft as so-called Rosie the, Rosie the Riveters. That's absolutely right. Uh, this was a time when, when women contributed to the, the American economy and the workforce as never before. Of course, a lot of young men had gone overseas to fight the war. And at Willow Run, there were more than 15,000 women working at the plant at its peak. And that works out to something like 35% of the staff. So a, an enormous contribution. And Detroit is still proud to this day of, of the work done by, by those Rosies, right? Rosie the River, who remains a, a feminist icon in the present. The Willow Run plant remains a, a landmark here in, in southeast Michigan. It's, it's just about 25, 30 miles west of Detroit. Uh, there is an organization out there right now that is trying to preserve some of that that airfield. A, a lot of the facilities from World War II have now been torn down many years ago. But uh, they are now working to build a new hangar uh, that will serve as a museum, celebrating the achievements of the Rosies and, and really the production workers at Willow Run generally. It's the Yankee Air Museum, well worth visiting if you get a chance to come out to, to Michigan. For that matter, they've even got a, a tri-motor in their collection too, so you can really get the whole story. And I heard that they're actually restoring that tri-motor for people who want to go up in a, in a vintage aircraft. That is absolutely right. In fact, I was out there this weekend and saw it. The plane looks looks absolutely beautiful. I, you know, it's got to be one of the best, uh, most complete restorations of, of a Ford trimotor done. Uh, saying that, you know, do I do I personally have the nerve to get into an airplane that's uh, you know ninety years old now, close to hundred? I don't know, <laughs> but uh, it's it's great that that opportunity is still available. So, uh, did the Ford Motor Company as a whole learn anything from the short live production? of the tri-motor that it applied to future automobile production? That's a great question, and I would have to say I think the answer is probably no. I, I, it was more the other way around. Things that, things that they had learned in building automobiles were applied to the production of the tri-motor aircraft, but uh, I don't think they really – 
got anything for the automotive industry out of the tri-motor effort, with one notable exception. Uh, the tri-motor was built uh, on site on an airport that Henry Ford built in Dearborn, not far from his engineering lab. And uh, some years after they'd gotten out of the aircraft business, that airport was converted into a proving ground or a test track, the first one really that Ford Motor Company had. And uh, I can say that that track is still in use almost daily by Ford Motor Company here in the year 2021. So they did get that out of the whole adventure. So ironically, some 70 years later, Alan Mulally, the vaunted head of Boeing's famed commercial aircraft group, left Boeing for Ford Motor Company in 2006 and served as president and CEO of Ford until his retirement from Ford in 2014. And at the time of his being hired, many people were skeptical whether someone who had never worked in the automobile manufacturing industry could transition from aircraft to cars. And Mulally's response was classic. Quote, An automobile has about 10,000 moving parts, right? An airplane has 2 million. And it has to stay up in the air. <laughs> now, I, we're not denigrating uh, anything about automobiles, but, but I thought that was a great answer. What, what do you think? No, I, I think that that's great. And, and yeah, Mulally was, was absolutely fantastic. He, he's one of those very special people that, that has the, the business sense to be able to apply his knowledge to, uh-huh. to any field, to manufacturing anything. And he came to Ford Motor Company at a really tough time right after the recession there in 2008. You recall other automakers went bankrupt. Ford managed to to make it through without having to declare bankruptcy. And a lot of the credit for that goes to Alan Mulally. So uh, a wonderful person at just the right time. So when you walk the halls of the museum and you see these great aircraft, these tri-motors, what goes through your head? Yeah, anytime I, I see that that airplane, you know, I, I think about uh, early air travel and I think of the the courage it took. And, and I say that meaning anyone who, who had any association with the industry, certainly the pilots had to be brave to fly in those aircraft under those rather primitive conditions. The folks like Boeing or like like the Fords that were sinking money into it had to be brave knowing that there was, you know, a good chance they weren't going to get much of that money back, if any. And really the passengers had to be brave too. Uh, it, it was an untested technology and, uh, you know, it had only been 20 years since Orville and Wilbur Wright flew at Kitty Hawk. So, uh, my my hats off to the folks who are willing to do that. I mean, we talk about the uh, you know the the discomfort or the pain of air travel now, having to go through security and the delays and the layovers and all of this. But you know, it, it's really it's nothing compared to what folks were going through a century ago. So my hats off to them. Matt, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Absolutely. They can follow us at the Henry Ford. We're, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Our, our website is thehenryford.org. You can get a hold of me or any of my colleagues through any of those channels. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Matt Anderson, thanks for giving us a better understanding of this historic aircraft. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>